Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in this technology-centric world and we want to help. What have we got lined up for this episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear an interview about how mothers in particular manage children's media use, so listeners might recognise themselves in what we'll be discussing, or not. And either way, we really hope that you'll get in touch with us and let us know what you think. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, demystify it so that we can inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today, we're discussing a paper that's been published by Indian researchers by using mindfulness interventions to treat internet gaming disorder or video gaming addiction. Mm. Liz, I've got two letters for you, O and M, which spells OM. (laughs) All right, that's what we need. How can we use the ancient mantras of India to help with all addictions and not just screen addictions? To find out, stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of India about mindfulness or meditation, really, and whether it can help with gaming disorder the way it does with other addictions. Kim, do I need to ask, why'd they do this research? Globally, there is an increasing concern for behavioural addictions such as gambling and screen addictions. Mm. This article explores the potential role of mindfulness-based interventions in addressing gaming disorder. Yes, so I guess we already knew that mindfulness and meditation are quite helpful for other kinds of addiction, for substance addictions, and I guess that must go back a fair way, that kind of knowledge. And um, now they're applying it to these uh, new kinds of addictions that are really taking over in so many people's lives. So yeah, nice to see they got onto that. It's fascinating to me. How'd they do the research? The authors conducted a literature review of relevant articles between 2009 and 2021. Mm -hmm. They found 18 papers discussing the role of mindfulness-based interventions in promoting emotional regulation, metacognitive awareness, adaptive coping, reducing impulsivity and craving for playing games, among gamers with gaming disorder. Mm. So, yeah, it's a literature review, basically, which is a really helpful kind of research where a researcher or a group of researchers gets a whole bunch of papers and just tries to look at them all together and say, what's going on here, which is a really nice shortcut for people like you and me who don't have time to read all the papers. So, yeah, very nice that you found this. Uh, What did they find? The evidence suggests that mindfulness-based interventions have potential to be used in managing gaming disorder. Yeah. If you think about any kind of addiction, there is a loss of control, yeah. a loss of awareness of one's behavior, perhaps a need to escape one's distress. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness has two main components, self-regulation and attention, and then awareness of one's experiences. Yeah, so they're basically the opposite of the things that are going on with the addiction. You just hear it put like that, it seems so obvious that it would help. Self-regulation of attention means observing and being aware of one's sensations, thoughts or feelings from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And essentially mindfulness involves the awareness of your moment-to-moment experience, non-judgmentally and with acceptance. Yeah, that's a hard one though, isn't it? You'd have to put some effort into learning that part, I think. 
meditation has been shown to enhance brain volume in reward processing areas of the brain. And mm. mindfulness has been shown to aid the development of skills that can regulate inhibitory processes in teens. So that filter that you need, the, the braking system to sort of process your thoughts. Mm. So the thing that says, you know, why am I keeping on playing this game, you know, even though I need to go to the toilet or something like that. And you, you're aware of those thoughts rather than it just sort of washing over you. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like. A really, really helpful approach. So, yeah, I think we're both agreeing there wasn't anything terribly surprising about that finding. Um, But how does it fit with what we already know? Well, two things. I've actually visited the lead author, Dr. Manoj Sharma, many Mm. years ago in 2015 at the famous psychiatric facility Nimhans in India, Mm -hmm. where they deliver free yoga therapy for all mental disorders, not just gaming disorder, to patients and their family members. Mm. Also, I've just recently come back from Sydney to support our good friend, Professor Wayne Warburton and his gaming disorder program, which yep. was recently filmed by Channel 7. Mm-hmm. It'll be out in April. And Professor Warburton used mindfulness exercises for the young people in the program. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. He, he's built that in. I yes. guess he's been accessing that same literature that, uh, that they were Must looking do. at there. Yeah, he, he wouldn't have just plucked it out of the air. Though no. it does seem like such an obvious thing to do. Yeah. It's always really nice when you get proper yeah. research backing it up and yeah. it's not just you know our own presumptions and yeah. um, prejudices and whatnot. And we were in the most fantastic setting. Obviously, you know this place, yes, uh, Hawkesbury River. Yeah. Amazing place. Yeah. We just simply got the kids to go outside, have a moment, smell the roses, pay attention to something, Look at the river, mm. look at uh, the freshly cut grass, the trees, the birds, mm. and then pay attention to that. And then later they shared that with the group. Wow. If only we could all live in such a beautiful place as the Hawkesbury, um, we would all be very, very mentally healthy, I think, and not do anything against our own interests. Unfortunately, it's not possible. But yeah, it's an amazing part of the world. So any reservations about what they found there? Well, there may be some selection bias. Um, some of his um, own studies were within the search, hmm. and many of those studies, yes, were were from India and Asia. Okay, so there's a little bit of a, I'm going to do a literature research. Oh, look, I published this thing last year and this thing the year before yeah. and so on. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's the point of peer review is that once you've put your paper through peer review, it's not just your paper anymore. It's got that extra uh-huh. status, if you yeah. like, that other people have agreed that this is a worthwhile piece. Yeah, yeah. I gather they're not saying that this is the be-all and end-all, it's going to fix everybody's addictions, but it's just like one tool in the toolkit, yeah? Yes, yeah. So that's the usual story, isn't it, with research, that um, it gets reported in a way that makes it seem really simple and it's a really sort of powerful message because that's you know the media has an interest in dressing things up that way, but that's part of what we're about in this podcast is to just take a step back and say, well, how can we use research and, and what's the best way of using it? in our day-to-day lives. So coming to that, you as a psychiatrist, going to change anything about your practice? Well, to be honest, with the amount of automatic information scrolling that I did last night (laughs) in today's fast-paced society, I think I need to remind myself to meditate more often. Okay. So do you meditate? Yeah, I've learned to meditate uh, with Jen from Right Brain Liaisons in Adelaide. Okay. Did one of her courses and uh, leave the money day. on the fridge, Jen. Thanks <laughs> for the plug. Yeah, <laughs> go on. Uh, yeah. But she's great. I met her through mm. TEDx. Uh huh. She gave um, meditation 
and um, relaxation techniques to the speakers many years ago. Oh, we just kept okay. In touch. Yeah. Right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay, good. Yeah, it's something that I've always thought I might do one day and never got around to it. One of my sisters is a big meditator. Oh, you've got to get around so. to it. If, if you're... Is it your your sister, did you say? Oh, well, my sister has always been a big meditator. Oh, yeah. I've always quite yes. admired that. And, you know, but with that sort of sisterly thing, you think, okay, that's your field. Okay, I'll leave you to do that. You know, maybe yeah, maybe I, think, I need to put my toe in the what's water What's your sister's well. name? Emily. Emily. I think Emily's onto something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can get Emily in and yeah. uh, do a meditation on uh, the podcast. Uh, Emily's into lots of stuff and onto lots of stuff. She's a very, very cluey woman. And I'm sure she would have a lot to say on this podcast. Maybe we will do that one day. Anyway, hold that thought, listeners. But um, let's now go back to our listeners to the extent that their parents or people who care for children, what would you recommend that they could get from this? Start small, Liz. It Mm -hmm. could be as simple as getting your child to notice their breath, Uh the smell of freshly cut grass, or mindfully making their bed. Mindfully making their bed. We love that one. Yeah, and there's so many opportunities to do it. Our senses are just giving us information all the time and some of it's just so pleasant. And It's a real gift to children, I think, to teach them to appreciate the world around them. And it's certainly something that my parents did for me that I have always remembered and always been appreciative of. Well, there were a couple of pretty interesting tips from Kim about how to introduce mindfulness into your children's lives. The paper was by Manoj Kumar Sharma and colleagues, and the title is Mindfulness-Based Interventions, Potentials for Management of Internet Gaming Disorder. It was published in the International Journal of Yoga. I love the fact that there's an International Journal of Yoga. I need to find out what else is in there. Full details in the show notes. Now, we'd normally have a movie review. But for this episode, we're opening up more space for the interview with Faye Heaselgrave. Yes, we'll be back with another review in the next episode. But in the meantime, if you need to find a suitable movie for your child and you just can't wait, head to www.childrenandmedia.org.au. Then you can find the Know Before You Go review service by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab and sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date just depending what you need. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services at home. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to sign up for our KBYG, that's Know Before You Go, weekly newsletter about the latest reviews and join the CMA Facebook community. Links for both are in the show notes. Now it's time for Zooming Out, our regular segment where we look at some of the broader social and policy issues that get thrown up by all the different ways screens come into children's lives. Today we've got an interview. Liz, who have we been talking to now? Dr. Faye Heaselgrave is the Director of the Master of Communications at the University of South Australia, and she finished her PhD in 2021 with a study on mothers' interactions with digital media as users and facilitators of use by children. If that's all a bit of a mouthful, just keep on listening. Faye makes a lot of sense of it once we get into it. And you might recognise her voice from Episode 9, where she read the review of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. 
got a beautiful accent and I really enjoyed chatting with her. So here it is. Well, I'm here with Faye Heaselgrave, who's a researcher at the University of South Australia and has been making her mark doing work on parental mediation, particularly by mothers. And Faye is somebody we've known for a little while. She read one of our reviews several episodes back, and she's also somebody that I've been working with on a survey that CMA and she are doing uh, to find out parents' attitudes to and wishes for the classification system. We'll put a link relating to that in the show notes. But meanwhile, um, we're going to have a nice chat with Faye about the research that she's been doing over the last few years. Welcome to the show, Faye. Thanks very much, Lizzie. Great to be here. So you study parental mediation. That's something that we touch on a fair bit in the show. So it's great to have a chance to have a proper debrief with somebody who actively researches it. Can you tell us what parental mediation is and why people research it? Sure, I'll have a go. Parental mediation really refers to the range of strategies that parents use to help them manage children's media use. Mm-hmm. It's been a, a kind of an area of interest really since the 70s and was focused around television consumption. And in those days, of course, we were a bit more restricted in terms of the content and, and platforms that we had available to us. Some might think that that kind of made parenting a bit easier. But in, in those days, it, there was really uh, an interest in whether parents would restrict their children's access to television or particular content, certain mm-hmm. themes, whether they uh, had certain rules around when they could watch TV whether they would co-watch or co-view television with their children and and if that actually helped Mm -hmm. them as parents to better manage their children's use and allay fears of exposure perhaps to harmful content. Mm. So those were sort of the general strategies that were thought to be relevant to television watching. Now, of course, we have a much wider, diverse range of of media that our children can engage with, and and we too, of course, as parents. So the research around parental mediation has now naturally had to extend to looking at things like children's gaming, as Mm -hmm. well as their access to stream content, which, you know, is pretty much 24-7 available to, to kids. And so the strategies and the research, the research that's been done around the strategies that parents use have had to adapt to the different types of media that children engage with. Those, some of those strategies include actually talking with children. So it's called a discursive strategy mm-hmm. where we spend a bit of time trying to understand what it is that children like about a particular show, for example, or mm-hmm. a certain game. What, do the, what does that child get out of it? And in doing so, we become more informed and more educated ourselves as parents. So that's a really interesting strategy that we see particularly around the topic of video gaming. Yeah, and games are particularly bewildering, aren't they? Like it's easy enough to just sit and watch a TV show or a movie or something with a child, but playing a game requires particular skills and also a a fair amount of um, investment of time, which makes it a whole different sort of ball game for parents, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. Yeah. yeah. So the strategies that you know we saw originally applied to t- TV watching, of course, yeah. yeah, naturally they've had to evolve. Yeah. And, and another thing that occurs to me, actually, and we're going to get, start talking about your work on mothers specifically in a minute, but it just occurred to me how 
these days we know that there are quite stark gender differences among young people and children mm -hmm. as to the kind of media that they're most engaged with with boys tending to be much more engaged with games and girls tending to be much more engaged with social media now you know that's you can't generalize 100 percent on that but those are tendencies and i'm just thinking you know if you're a mother of a boy and you know, your own tendency based on your own gender is you know, not all that interested in games and that might be an extra layer of challenge that our parents really didn't have because there weren't those gender differences in the kinds of um, media that we consumed yeah, definitely. And I think it's not just about skill, although, of course, that's important when you're thinking of video gaming, but it is the time factor mm. and the energy levels that are available to mothers, especially those that are in paid work. Yeah, sure. Which is you know, a lot of us, isn't it? It's like 75%, I think, was the, Absolutely. Yeah, the number that you cited in your paper. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, look, let's get on to the question of mothers, because as you said, that's your area mm. of specific interest and expertise. So how did you come to decide to study mothers specifically? So I am a mother. And <laughs> what better place to start your research than yeah. in lived experience? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I had young kids. So I think six and eight. Mm -hmm. And my son, the eldest child, was just getting to that point where, and we, we're going back, so this is 10 years ago go mm -hmm. uh, where ipads and tablets were really taking off and yeah. he you know was one in one and then it kind of escalated and two or three years later you know my daughter's got her tablet and it just became a very instead of us sitting around the tv set you know <laughs> yeah. uh, enjoying that regular nightly routine of watching the same show together we just started to all separate and go off and kind of engage with media in our own ways. Mm -hmm. And I was really curious about how other mothers felt about that, whether they were having the same experience or whether mm -hmm. there was, you know, what I perceived at the time to be a better way of having bringing cohesion into the family you know hmm. where other mothers experiencing it so really that was kind of my starting point and I very informally had some discussions with various uh, friends of mine who who had children the same age and every time I brought the subject up they'd go oh it's such a nightmare it's hmm. so hard like meal times now you know we can never get our kid off their phone or off their tablet and hmm. Or, you know, we go out to the shops and they just moan all the time because, you know, I just need to give them a phone to keep them quiet. And I, I thought this is actually something of real significance that is changing the way families interact. Mm. So that was really my starting point. And then, of course, as a mother and working mother, I wanted to see whether the additional impact of being in paid employment on top of mainly managing the domestic environment kind of collided and may have created a deeper sense of you know responsibility mm -hmm. in managing all of this sudden media use yeah that's really interesting so your ultimate question was really the relationship between the parental mediation role and women's role as unpaid carers in their families is that a fair summary yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Okay. So what's yeah. the answer? What's the answer to that question? Just in, in 25 words or less, Faye? What'd you find? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, 
what I looked at specifically was the idea of unpaid digital care work. Mm, and yeah. that's really what parental mediation has become. Mm -hmm. It's a digital care role where parents, but particularly mothers, are expected to and indeed assume responsibility for managing their children's various media use. Mm -hmm. That's the quickest answer I can give you. Yep. Okay. The next thing that I was wondering was how mothers manage the fact that children often get devices because they're necessary for their schoolwork, but those same devices also carry distractions like games and social media. That seems mm -hmm. to be something that comes up all the time. So what do you find out about that? Parental mediation is really related to this this idea of responsibility and expectation, right? Because it requires us to use different strategies and to know what those different strategies are mm -hmm. and how those different strategies are appropriate for different types of use. It's quite a complex process when you think yeah. about it because yeah. you've not just got to apply a specific strategy to a specific child, but it's also got to be within a specific context <laughs> yeah. and on a specific platform. Yeah. So when it comes to the use of a digital device, say a laptop, for example, in by a school, right? Most of us, perhaps many of the listeners will understand and be able to relate to their kid coming home from school with a laptop that the school has asked you as a parent to provide for them mm. to use to learn yeah. on in school but they bring it into the home and then it's the parent's job to take over yeah. and they have to supervise the child using that laptop mm. for homework purposes but that child is also using that laptop in the home at other times for leisure, you know, mm -hmm. for, for social media or for gaming or for, for streaming content. It sounds quite hopeful from my perspective that it would be at other times because certainly what I've observed, even with the people that I used to teach at universities, is that they would be switching back and forth between the two constantly. Well, this is the point. So we can, of course, have multiple windows open, which mm. means that that switching in between is happening all the time. Yeah, and the messages yeah. and notifications are pinging the whole time that you're trying Absolutely. to concentrate on your homework. And yeah, I don't know how they manage. It would drive me crazy. But, so yeah. how so how how does the parent then supervise that process? Mm. And it, if you add to that problem that the laptop can be in the bedroom and not in the mm. sight of a, of a parent, then, yep. you know, there, there's no physical supervision of the child doing their homework. Managing that digital yeah. homework is more complex than it was for parents who had traditional homework sure, yeah. to oversee and supervise. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've just spoken to so many parents over the years who just feel really let down by the school and education system that they just bring this laptop business into kids' mm. lives like it's going to be a solution to everything and it just creates so many problems and parents are at home trying to figure it out for themselves and it's really, really challenging. It is really difficult and doing it for themselves, absolutely, mm. yeah. And then there's the question of children getting a phone because a lot of parents and I'm sure a lot of mothers think, oh, yeah, get my son or daughter a phone and that means that I'll be able to keep connected to him or her and know where he or she is all the time and so on. And so that seems to facilitate the caring role. But can that backfire sometimes? What have people told you about that? Absolutely. The, the This sort of strategy, which, you know, is kind of like an, what I have referred to as an, a digital umbilical cord where <laughs> the parent can remain a 
attached, you know, emotionally mm. attached to their child. Mobile phones are great at reassuring us as parents mm. that our kids are safe or that they've got to a place on time or whatever. But what happens when that child doesn't answer their phone and it goes, <laughs> I mean, I had it again this morning with that kind of split second of panic of mm. where are they what are they doing are they mm. safe yeah it can really yeah. breed that insecurity in parents yeah. yeah whereas i think you know for my parents it would have just been a matter of they had to trust that i was okay unless they heard otherwise there was exactly right no way of checking and so they had to just hope for the best yes and, yes uh, and so that anxiety didn't exist in the way that it mm. does yeah yes absolutely so it's what we call a double-edged sword isn't it mm-hmm. yeah now what about, you know, thinking back to my own ex- experience of being a child whose parents were mediating me, the only thing I can really remember strongly from my own childhood and teenage years is my father walking into the room when my sisters and I were watching TV and saying, what are you watching that rubbish for? Mm-hmm. And I think there's probably still a fair bit of that where parents just think the stuff that their kids are accessing, are, you know, they don't necessarily think it's harming the kids, but they just think it's kind of boring rubbish and they're not at all interested in engaging with it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before how one of the parental mediation strategies that's been studied, and I think mm-hmm. from what I know, it's been found to be quite effective in mitigating any harmful impact of media content on children is to have that conversation with a parent who's sort of debriefing and putting it in a different context and so on so you know what would you say to parents who think that what their children are accessing is just a whole lot of stuff that they're not interested in they just want to leave the kids to get on with it the research does suggest and certainly i found this in my own research that that discursive strategy of parental mediation can be really positive in terms of helping the not just the parent to understand a bit more about the why the child is watching something that they consider boring mm. but also helps the child feel like their parent is more actively engaged in what they're doing and, and their interests mm. and that can open up a whole wealth of opportunity to just have conversations about different topics you know well what what is it that you find interesting about this show mm-hmm. what are the characters like what is the premise of the plot line mm. uh, what are the topics that you find most interesting and why yeah they're the things really that provide that positive environment for children to become more aware of their own media consumption you know because they're being asked questions about it rather than just sort of sitting there zoned out you know screen Mm. in front of them content washing over them Mm. they become more diligent about their own media Mm. consumption and and why they do it yeah And, and another one is to another parental mediation strategy is actually an investigative strategy so Mm -hmm. this is really helpful for perhaps for parents who are debating whether or not their child should get TikTok or Instagram or whether they should watch a particular show on TV or go to a movie. Those parents can do their own research and their own level of investigation. They can do things like jump onto your your website, you know, look at mm-hmm. children and media resources. They sure uh, can. <laughs> movie reviews and, and see in advance whether or not they think that that content or that video game is actually appropriate for their child. So that, again, is another really positive parenting strategy that yeah. can help build trust as well between the parent and the child and also in their mediation role and the media yeah. 
between them. Well, we certainly think so. And, and you know, another idea that just popped into my head, I've never really thought of this before, but maybe as parents, we can also model a way of discussing and thinking about the media that we consume. So, you know, if we've watched a movie or a TV show or you know, just seen a, a video on social media or something, we could talk to our kids about mm. it. We could say, hey, yeah. I saw this thing. Here's what I'm thinking about it. I do it. it all and, the time. Yeah. yeah I, I do too, now that, you know, now that you come to mention it. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I'd like to think that's a really positive kind of strategy for helping kids, again, to be more reflective about what they're watching, what they're engaging with mm -hmm. and why and how it makes them feel and what they really want in life. And that's really, you know, you could apply that to any aspect of parenting. It's not just media, is it? It's like oh, choosing absolutely. which sport you want to play or anything like that. You talk about, well, what do you want? What do you like? Why do no, you like absolutely. it? Yeah. yeah, why? That's right. Get in, get in to really just be engaged in those sort of critical conversations and reflections. You know, yeah. why? Why do I like this? I think yeah. that's really important anyway, just for for growth, as you yeah. say, in any sort of circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, and that reminds me of the participant that you quoted saying that her daughter and the quote was doesn't think it's unusual for me to ask what's happening because i ask all of the time mm -hmm. and you know, i guess that's what we're talking about there that you could extrapolate that into more general advice for parents about mediation or a, a more general comment about the role of mediation mm -hmm. how you can bring it into your life and your children's lives any time <laughs> and mm. possibly the earlier the better yeah, I think normalising those sorts of conversations from the outset, that's a really good place to start because mm. then, you know, the parents are also given the opportunity to learn about various media and platforms and all that kind of stuff with their child. Yeah. So if we think back to the original parental mediation model, and I mentioned co-viewing was considered the optimum strategy because you're actually sitting there and watching with your child. Well, now, of course, it's not just watching. So we have co-using yeah. and co-playing as, mm -hmm. as equivalent strategies. So Co-clicking. Co-clicking, yeah, indeed. Co-scrolling. <laughs> you know, so, so if you are actually involved and engaged in similar practices to your child from day one and, more importantly, talking with them about yeah. their practices, and as you mentioned, it goes both ways, mm. then I think it, media can then become less of a, a negative influence or impact. And, you know, it's really my initial experience that I talked about where suddenly these um, iPads had arrived on the market and, you know, there was an explosion of them in the home. Mm. That was very drastic and, mm. and it did create a big surge of ambivalence, I think, among parents because mm. we just weren't prepared for it. It's not the case now. So mm. I think really it's about learning to live with these media, with our children. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. that's why we're here that's why yeah. we do the podcast there's no suggestion we have any choice but to live with them but yeah. you know, how do we but live with them positively yeah exactly time. yeah make them have a positive impact on yeah your so I guess that brings me to the next question which is what contribution your study could make to public policy do you yeah. yeah, well, yeah. certainly from the mother's perspective. So I think that we really need to get our heads around the fact that mothers do still do the majority of domestic care in the mm -hmm. home. Yeah. It's not to exclude the role of fathers at all, but it is to at least acknowledge and call out that mums are doing a lot of work. You know, most of the time, a majority of women are in paid employment. That's whether yeah. that's inside or out the home. But this mm -hmm. unpaid work that they're doing is relentless mm -hmm. and they have very little break from it. 
So they're not only kind of dealing with paid work, with the usual domestic household work, Mm. but they are also dealing with managing the digital work. So I think public policy really needs to recognise the contribution that mothers make within that role and within that the expanded role of mothering and to provide better support to families so that perhaps fathers can pick up more of that load and help alleviate mothers. But I think on top of that as well, and I'm sure you'll completely agree with this, Lizzie, you know, we, we need to have policies that better inform parents about supporting children's use of media mm-hmm. i know that's essentially what children and media australia what cma are all about but really it's more you know i think bigger than that it's the matter of time mm. you know, parents yeah. need the space and the time to be able to do these wonderful positive strategies of you know co-using co-playing yeah. discussion investigation all that kind of thing so yeah, yeah. so it could even go back to things like conditions of work that you know maybe Absolutely people who are parents shouldn't yeah. be under too much you know stress or pressure from work which is a, a really nice thing to try to imagine i'm not sure how you achieve it but you've got to start somewhere indeed yeah. i'm thinking back to the very first line in the abstract to your paper which is about the fact that we're always talking about parents and parenting this and parenting that in relation to mm. media consumption by children but we really are talking about mothers. So you know, let's sort of get rid of this sort exactly. of false gender neutral language <laughs> and really start to think about the, the fact that, you know, when we're talking about the, all these parents, we are in fact talking about women. Yeah. And so think about that in the context of women's lives and all that women go through and all that's yeah. expected of them. So COVID showed us that, you know, lots of people st- suddenly started to work in the home. Now, that's just a recipe for disaster for a lot of mums because yeah. if they're working in the home and they've got kids in the home, it just compounds the extra pressure. But then you've also got the problem of them working in the workplace and then physically they have to get themselves there. They're separated from the – oh, yeah. it's just it, – it, Yeah. It's a whole yeah, but- raft of issues. <laughs> but – a really good starting point is to recognise the reality of it, isn't it? And then you know, that will inform the conversation. So well done pointing that out. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Faye. It's been really nice to finally have a good chat with you about your research. And as I said, listeners, I'll certainly put a link to Faye's paper that we've been discussing in the show notes, but I'll also put a link to the survey that she and I have been working on because that's really, really interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for joining us, Faye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 27. We'd really love to have your feedback, as always, so please get in touch. If you're a subscriber on Substack, you can leave a comment there. Otherwise, you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word. Or you can email us at... Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us and what we're doing, you can help by subscribing to the show on your listening platform and or on Substack. It's worth doing both because Substack subscribers get an email when a new episode drops or there is other news, and you can also join our listener community. Details are in the show notes along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. 
Finally, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. And this, this has been, been the team, team from Outside the Screen. screen. See you soon.